Prologue I have to go back before I go forward. Although counterintuitive, children, even when ignored or abused by their parents, still seek their love and approval. It is innate and primal. It is also reinforced by religious and societal constructs. Most religions have guidelines for honoring one's parents, and schools often structure activities in such a way as to have young children make gifts for their parents. As a result, we are indoctrinated to be in relationship with our parents, on top of the hard wiring that comes with being human. I didn't escape any of that. As I grappled with my sexuality, I remember struggling with the nuance between tolerance and acceptance, but in the end, I just wanted to be loved by my parents. Before all of my therapy, before I fully regained my memories of my father's sexual abuse of me as a child, I had made as much peace with my father's absence from my life as I could. His disinterest in me began when I reached first grade and had become too old to satisfy his sexual urges. His disinterest continued through the end of my parents' marriage when I was in high school. His absence made it easier in some ways for me to find this peace. However, there were many years throughout my life when I wished the anger and violence and damage he had wreaked upon my body and soul had been replaced by other things. Memories of playing catch. Memories of having been taught as a young man how to engage with the world around me. Memories of being shown how to shave. Memories of having been taught how to drive. Memories of having been shown, by direct example, how to face difficult times with grit and decorum. But there were no such memories, and to dwell upon their absence was an unproductive investment of my energy. By the time I entered my junior year of college, I recognized my desire for an alternate reality between my father and I for the fantasy it was. I never received any guidance, beyond negative examples, for what it was to be a man. Don't beat your children. Don't beat your wife. Don't erode someone's innocence or trust. For positive role models, I turned to public figures, books, movies, and television. Other than Mr. Labor, who had invited my mother and me to stay with his family after our apartment fire, I had no real-world adult role models in my life. And as for my mother, I was fiercely loyal to her as a child and young adult. She disappointed and hurt me regularly. She continuously rejected my attempts at emotional connection and physical affection, but I loved her deeply nonetheless. She was my mother. When she cried, I cried. When she was sad, I did my best to cheer her up. I was the one who made sure she had what she liked for Mother's Day, from breakfast in bed to Andy's creme de menthe chocolates. I did my best to behave in ways that pleased her. I helped her find her contact lenses whenever they'd pop out. I did my own laundry from the time I was in middle school. I bought many of my own clothes from a young age. When the diamond fell out of her engagement ring, just months before their divorce was final, she thought she had lost it in the car, and I spent hours meticulously vacuuming the vehicle, sifting through the filth in the vacuum bag, in the hopes of finding it for her. I regularly told her that I loved her, I tried to be there for her when her father died, and when her husband left. Even though she rejected my comfort on both fronts, I offered it anyway. I didn't give her much back talk, 
I had my mouth washed out with soap more than once for sassing her in elementary school, but I never physically assaulted her, as my brother had once done. I was the child who managed to find the right gift for her, from clothing to jewelry to cassette tapes of old radio shows she once listened to with her father as a child. I gave her the gift of my time, and we'd watch TV together and listen to Mountain Stage Radio Hour. I would wash her car without being asked, even when I no longer drove it. I occasionally made us dinner, and I think, most importantly, I listened to her. I did my best to meet her needs, as I'd been raised to do, because she was my mother, and that was who I was. I tried while writing this episode to find positive, uplifting, soulful mother-son stories to share with you to explain how much we loved each other. But I couldn't. They don't exist. Or rather, they were tragically one-sided. Hers was a sideways love. She loved me only for what I brought to her life. She loved that people told her I was adorable as a child. She loved when people would compliment me, because she took such compliments as praise of her and her parenting. She saw me as an extension of herself, through which she garnered positive reinforcement from the world. As long as people were making positive commentary about something I'd done, she felt better about herself. When I cast my line back into my history to find some shining memory between us that would explain my fierce loyalty and love for her as a child and an adolescent, I catch loving acts I did for her, but my line comes back empty in the reverse. She took care of me when I was ill. We went to the movie theater together a few times. She bought me birthday cakes. She bought me presents at Christmas, and there were Easter baskets. She'd occasionally tell me she was proud of me for having accomplished this or that, so long as she could claim bragging rights with her friends about how well she'd raised me, which enabled said accomplishment to have occurred. But there's no standout moment where she did or said something that made me feel seen, supported, accepted, or loved. There were words of love from her. She would literally tell me that she loved me. But her behavior and actions belied the sentiment, and I was often conflicted and confused by the disconnect between her words of love and her callous actions. We had incredibly divergent definitions for love, or she didn't really love me, at least not in a healthy and functional way. Yet, I loved her. I was always hopeful that one day, her occasional loving words for me would align with ongoing loving actions toward me. I maintained faith and hope for that change for us. I wanted her to find love again. I wanted her to be happy. I was proud of her for keeping her life on course after her husband blew it up, and I told her as much. She had many failures as she restarted her life, some of which impacted me directly, but she kept moving forward. And that is the closest thing to a shining memory between us that I can catch. She survived her husband, my father, and I witnessed her do it. Skyborn, Episode 16, Cursed, by K.G. Lockrams. Ray and I sat back down at the kitchen table and hashed out what had gone wrong over winter break, from my coming out to his misinterpreting my actions as passes. We were having our second beers. I want to break up with Susan. What's going on? She's not coming back to campus this semester, so I'll only get to see her weekends. 
And whenever we're together, she keeps laying guilt trips on me, he said. About what? You know, I really don't want to talk about her right now. After he finished his beer, we parted company, and I went to bed. I'd learned the value of being on campus first thing for move-in day in order to get the best parking in the best parts of the room, so we agreed to arrive an hour early. When we got our room assignments, we learned we were in the room I had the prior semester, and our third roommate had withdrawn from school, so it was just going to be Ray and me. Things are finally looking up, I thought. We dumped our things in the room and decided to head to the local mall. Are you and Susan getting together this weekend? No, I told her not to come up. I want to get settled in before classes start Monday, and I feel like you and I need to make up for some lost time. I felt as if I had my best friend back, and it felt great. I was thinking about what I read in your journal, he continued. If you hadn't told me you were gay hours before that kiss, I wouldn't have thought twice about it. I knew it was an accident when it happened. I never brought it up to you because I figured the issue would just fade away. But you should know, Sarah and Susan have been having a heyday with it all break. I kind of figured I was the center of some storm the way Violet and Virginia have shut me out. You know, when I stopped and saw Sarah last weekend, she acted as if I'd committed some crime against you and them. She wouldn't believe me when I said I hadn't made a pass at you. Well, if they were really your friends, he said. Although he had originally come to a conclusion that ultimately turned out to be a misinterpretation of events, Ray was avoiding his role in things and putting the blame squarely on the others. If he hadn't driven back to campus to tell Sarah and Susan how upset he was that I'd kissed him, if he hadn't told them he thought I'd tried to grab his ass New Year's Eve, there would have been no drama. Once he shared those two bits, there was no way the matter could simply fade away. But I appreciated his effort to explain it. I kind of get it, though, I said. Everyone was moving to protect you and Susan in the face of thinking I was making passes at you. Susan? Why does she need protecting from you? That day I stopped to see Sarah... She told me Susan thinks I'm trying to break you two up. Susan sees me as competition for your time. He said nothing, which usually meant he was angry. When we got home from the mall, we headed up to the room, and not realizing it, walked right past Susan and Virginia in the courtyard. Susan was suddenly standing in our doorway. Did you honestly not see us standing there? She was pissed. I didn't see you, Ray answered. We agreed we weren't going to hang out this weekend, so I wasn't looking for you. He was unfazed by her mood. I'd seen him argue with his ex-girlfriend many times, and he was unflappable. Ignoring Susan, he started arranging his things. She looked to me for help. I felt bad for her, but with everything that had gone on over break, I was also annoyed with her and unwilling to help her out. I just shrugged my shoulders with an I'm staying out of it expression on my face. She left the room without another word. I told Susan last night that you and I had a good talk, Ray said, and that I had gotten it all wrong. And that was the accountability I needed from him in order to let it go. I appreciate that, I said. He was quiet for a minute. She said they spent winter break dissecting your every move and comment from last semester. They feel you betrayed them, lying about who you really were. So their position is that while I was in the act of figuring it all out, somehow I owed it to them to tell them something before I even knew it for sure myself. Pretty much, he said, and hung a dartboard on the wall by the door. I really need to break up with her. Don't break up with her over me. That has to be her worst fear. It's not you. She's always on my ass about drinking. Is that the guilt trip you mentioned the other night? Among many other trips, he said and started throwing darts.
I went downstairs to move my car and passed Susan, Sarah, and Virginia in the lobby. Hey, I said and started toward them. Not one of them made eye contact with me, and they collectively turned their backs. I was angry and hurt, but didn't want to get into it, so just continued past them and left the building. I guess I'm on everyone's shit list, I said to Ray when I got back up to the room and told him what had happened. Like I said, if they were really your friends, he offered, as if to say, their loss. But the trouble was, they were my friends, and I felt the loss was mine. I found myself feeling guilty for not having told them sooner. Even though I got to my conclusion late in the semester, I was willing to take all the blame for everyone's behavior and assumptions as to my intentions. While we finished setting up the room, Ray said, I had a dream about you last night. I'm not into you. Not that kind of dream, he laughed. We were talking about you being gay, and you said you weren't sure. And I said I'm glad you hadn't committed to anything because, you know, you're only 20. I had no response to that. The next day we went to grab breakfast. Susan, Sarah, Virginia, and Jonah were eating at our usual table as we approached. Everyone said hello to Ray, but not me. Good morning, I said. Jonah was the only one who said good morning in response. Screw this, Ray said. Let's sit over there. Susan looked wounded, and everyone else suddenly found their food worth their full attention. After breakfast, Susan came up to the room. Is this how it's going to be every weekend? She asked Ray. I assumed in reference to his not hanging out with her. I don't know about every weekend, but I told you this weekend, I was going to be mostly drunk and hang out with Kit. He was bordering on hostile, and it made me uncomfortable. I had clearly become the lightning rod for whatever was going on between them. Again, she left the room without another word, visibly upset by their interaction. We spent the rest of the day playing darts and drinking. Inevitably, his hand went in my back pocket, and he dry-humped my hip while I was throwing darts. It was the first time it made me uncomfortable. I had a counseling session set up with Julio that Wednesday. I wanted his take on everything that had gone on over break and how quickly things had devolved among my friends, which meant I was going to have to come out to him. I was not looking forward to it. I couldn't get past my biases about his most likely being Catholic and, as a result, anti-gay. When I arrived for my session, the building was locked, and there was a sign on the door reading, All counseling sessions cancelled. Call to reschedule. Ridiculous, I said under my breath and went back to the room. Throughout the week, lines were being drawn. Sarah made it clear I was not welcome in her room. Virginia maintained her silence and Jonah did his best to stay neutral. One night I left a note for Sarah on her door. I said something I knew would provoke her just enough that she'd want to say something to me in response. It was manipulative, but it got us talking. In a nutshell, their grievances came down to the miscommunication about having made a pass at Ray, which he had since told them he'd gotten wrong. Then she pivoted to the fact that they all felt lied to and betrayed by my not telling them, from the start, that I was gay. I pointed out that I didn't know at the start of the semester whether I was or not, but she didn't want to hear it or be derailed by semantics. Semantics, I thought. My struggle around figuring out my sexual identity was hardly semantics. We're not your friends anymore, she said, and walked away. I was heartbroken. It was my worst fear of coming out realized. I finally made my peace with who I was and told the people closest to me that I was gay and was rejected for it. That Friday, Ray and I hung out with one of our quadmates, Greg. 
In the fall, Greg and I had gotten along well enough, but he'd started using steroids to bulk up, and I don't know if it was that or his dramatically improved physique, but he'd become arrogant and aggressive. When he and Ray started drinking, they would make me the target of all their jokes and drunken behavior. I left the room to take a leak, and while I was midstream, Ray came into the bathroom and poured his beer down my leg and into my shoe. What the fuck? I said. He just laughed and ran back into the room. Saturday night, Susan came up, and all they did was watch TV. She kept trying to engage him, and he remained mostly silent. I started journaling. I think I may have made a mistake rooming with Ray, I wrote. He never wants to study. He can pressure me into doing anything. And he's getting increasingly handsy with me. He keeps dry-humping me when he's been drinking and we're alone. He thinks it's hysterical, but I'm beginning to wonder if there may be more to it. It seems an odd choice for a straight guy to pantomime sex with his gay friend. I had my first therapy session of the semester. Rather than tell Julio I was gay, I used a photocopier in the library to copy the letter I'd written to Violet from my journal and gave it to him. I couldn't bring myself to say out loud that I was gay to anyone else given my recent experiences. Julio read the letter and put it down. Thank you for trusting me with this. I was relieved and let out the breath I didn't realize I'd been holding on to. How often do you cruise public bathrooms for sex, he asked. What? I was taken completely off guard. He simply repeated his question. Never. What prompted you to ask me that? The letter he'd just read laid out the majority of my sexual awakening and activities, and he's asking me if I'm cruising men's rooms for sex? He said, I know that's how many gay men engage in sex. And I thought, then he knew more about it than I did. I didn't even know that was a thing. Gay men? His word choice had me on edge. At 20, I barely thought of myself as a man, let alone a gay man. I regretted opening up to him and wanted to get up and leave. I felt as if my bias about his Catholicism had been justified. I was speechless. He filled the void. Were you ever taught any morals? I wanted to ask for a new therapist, but I found myself feeling more concerned for his well-being than my own. What would happen to him if I asked to see someone else? Would it reflect poorly on him? I wondered. Not knowing what to do, I simply answered his question. Only negative examples. He said that we could work on my morals and wrapped up our session. I didn't schedule another one. Instead, I started reading everything I could find on how to come out to friends and family, as these were my two most pressing concerns. A girlfriend of mine from high school, Joni, had transferred into the university and would come over to hang out with me. Her older brother was the kid who fell over drunk in my front yard at the time my mother had caught me trying to sneak back in the house, drunk, my senior year. I had asked Joni to homecoming when I was in 10th grade and she in 9th, but her mother thought she was too young to go. She was emotionally young for her literal age, and Ray was on the hunt as he toyed with the idea of breaking up with Susan. Susan had come up to spend the weekend before Valentine's Day with him. When she arrived that Friday afternoon at 4, Ray began doing shots of Jack Daniels. She was having none of it, and went down to Sarah's room. After a couple of hours of back-to-back shots, he was completely wasted. Why aren't you drinking? He demanded of me. I haven't even had dinner yet. It's too early to be... To be what? Wasted. Pussy, he said and left the room. Twenty minutes later, he was back. Well, I did it, he said. I just dumped Susan. I didn't know how, but I felt at some point in the future, this was going to all blow back on me. 
As soon as I walked into the room, I told her I was tired of her coming up and ruining my weekends. She was all, but it's the only time we have to see each other, and you can visit with your friends during the week. Ray did not like being told what to do. I told her during the week I'm doing homework and working, but that when I come back home, I wouldn't mind seeing her, but whenever she comes up here, I can't have any fun and I'm sick of it. He did a couple more shots. Let's go get dinner, he said, and we left for the dining hall. Just as we were finishing, Susan walked up to the table. Thanks for asking if I wanted to come to dinner with you guys, she said, and sat down at the next table over. You're welcome, Ray said and looked at me. Come on, Kit, let's get out of here. We went back to the room and Ray continued to do shots and had almost finished the bottle. About an hour later, Susan was at the door again and acted as if nothing had happened. The level of denial was unnerving. Ray was a complete ass to her, taunting her, making light of the whole situation, then ignoring her existence and endlessly throwing darts. When he threw one at her, she had had enough and left the room. Dude, that wasn't cool. Just tell her to go. Don't throw shit at her, I said. Mind your fucking business, he shot back and threw a dart past my head. She was my friend before she was your girlfriend. We continued to play darts, drink, and listen to music. Susan came back again with a girlfriend around 11. She received the same treatment, only this time Ray played I Didn't Mean to Turn You On by Robert Palmer on the stereo on repeat. She stayed, listening to that song for an hour, and left around midnight. Joni came over the next night to hang out with me, but instantly transitioned to Ray's orbit. She clearly had a thing for him. I got up and left the two of them alone. When I came back about an hour later, she was sitting on Ray's bed, and he was on his knees in front of her, holding her hands, sweet-talking her. Having already caught this act last semester with Susan, I turned around and left. Susan did her best to hang on to Ray, but the whole thing fell apart over the next week and a half. He was clearly moving on to Joni, and his behavior had become increasingly erratic. The phone rang one night when Ray was at work, and I knew who it was. Hello, I said. I guess you know we've officially split up, Susan said. I'm just going to say my piece. He's got a drug and alcohol problem, Kit. And the reason I was always such a drag on him was that I was doing my best to throttle it. He never did drugs in front of me, but I know you know what I'm talking about. I didn't say anything. And you've been drinking a lot more around him too, you know. And, well, I just wanted to say that to you. She was getting choked up. I need to ask you one question, she said. Was he seeing Joni before he dumped me? My loyalty was caught between friendships. Although Susan was in the you-lied-to-us camp, I didn't believe she deserved the treatment Ray had given her. Not really, I said. She was here to see me when she'd come over, and they shared space by extension. They have chemistry, but that's as far as things went. So the whole thing, our whole relationship, was some kind of joke to him, and she started angry crying. Fat, short, ugly little Susan, she blurted out. Susan, he wasn't cheating on you. I could hear her crying on the other end of the line. I may not know all there is to know about Ray, but I've known Joni as long as I've known you, and I know she wouldn't do that to someone. Susan gently hung up the phone. It was the last time we ever spoke. I thought about what Susan had said. My drinking was definitely up since Ray and I moved in together. We were starting to fight about it. He wanted to get drunk every single night, and I didn't. One night, I wanted to spend our drinking money on decent beer, and he reluctantly agreed. 
the higher price meant we had less beer, and we got in a fight when it ran out because he wasn't, quote, drunk enough. I started to see the problem I'd been blind to. I caught him one night in a stable headspace and asked if we could talk. I'm worried about you, I said. You sound like Susan. I'm trying to sound like a friend. What are you worried about? He asked. I think you know. He was quiet. I made an appointment with the counseling center, okay? Good. You're not yourself lately. I'm not going to harp on you, but you were an ass to Susan in the end, and you've been an ass to me. I've got enough on my plate, and I miss my friend. When's your appointment? Next week. I'm glad you're going. And I packed up my stuff and left for the library to study. In the run-up to his counseling appointment, he was absent from the room more often than not. When I did see him, he was drinking, or I assumed high on coke based on his energy. In the end, he blew off his appointment, which was the same week as my 21st birthday. I wrote Michael a letter. I hadn't seen him since before Christmas. We'd talk on the phone, we'd make plans to connect, and he'd cancel every time, just a couple of hours before I was supposed to come over. He was fascinating to me. He was so many different people. One person at the theater, one in the bedroom, one in front of others in his own home, and another in front of Howie and me. Each one had his own set of affectations, verbally and physically. He was always just a little different depending on the circumstances and who was around him, which resonated with me. I spent years being different versions of myself depending on my audience. In my letter, I told him I loved him, even though I knew we had no future. I shared some of the fallout of what had happened at school after my coming out to my core group of now ex-friends, and I told him I missed being with him. At midnight of the day I legally turned 21, a friend of mine took me out for a drink to the local TGI Fridays. Ray was nowhere to be found. I worried the whole day that something bad was going to happen to me, because my brother and sister had told me for as long as I could remember that I would not live to see my 21st birthday. Ray never did make an appearance, which was for the best. His personality had turned dark, and he was lashing out at everyone around him. My world had suddenly gotten very small. I went from having a robust peer support system at school to being an outcast. I didn't know what to do about the fact that Ray had blown off his counseling session. Feeling as if I had no other options, I made an appointment to see Julio. I didn't know what to make of our prior session but I knew enough to know I needed some kind of help. I decided I would give him my journal from last semester through to the present. Although I had no intentions of telling him about my brother pipping me out or my rape, his comments from that last session had damaged my trust, but he was all I had. When I arrived, his approach was completely different. He was less judgmental and more objective. The session ended and I gave him the journal. He suggested I make our next session 90 minutes. I spent the following week studying. I was finally back on track in my math classes, and when I wasn't studying, I was doing research on how to come out to my family. I had decided it was time. In the reading I'd done, a few things were common. Don't come out on an emotionally charged holiday like Thanksgiving or Christmas, and don't come out to just one member of the family, because it creates a secret and they have no one to discuss it with. I decided Easter was the best time to do it, as it was the only time before next Thanksgiving that my mother, brother, sister, and I would be together in the same space. Julio began our session from an unexpected place. I assumed it would be all about my being gay, but he surprised me. 
In reading your journal, you mention over and over how you don't let yourself get angry. Why is that? I look at anger as a kind of rejection. If I'm angry with someone, I'm rejecting them. I'm also afraid of losing myself like my brother and father do when they're angry. So what do you do with your anger? I thought for a moment. I turn it on myself. I'm okay beating myself up, but I wouldn't want to hurt someone with my anger. He leaned forward in his chair. Aren't you someone? How do you mean? You said you don't want to hurt anyone with your anger, so you turn it on yourself and hurt yourself. But aren't you someone? Why is it okay to hurt yourself, but not okay to hurt someone else? I never thought of it in those terms. I'm afraid if I really get angry and let it out, I'll hurt someone. Physically. That's what my brother and father always did. They get angry and physically attack one of us. Have you ever shown anyone your anger? Annoyance, sure, but not my rage. Have you ever lifted a hand to intentionally physically hurt someone? No. Then how or why do you think you can't control it, or that it will destroy someone? I stayed silent. I didn't have an answer. Your fears are rational. You must start releasing your anger. When someone upsets you, tell them. Use your sense of humor and let them know they made you angry. This won't destroy them. I must have looked skeptical. I know you won't be able to do this right away, but try for you. So I did, on Ray, and he did not like it. He didn't like that I started setting boundaries. He didn't like that I started saying what I wanted to do. And he most definitely didn't like that the word no started to be a regular word in my vocabulary. Suddenly I was just like Susan and a downer and holding him back. As he continued to be in the room and on campus less and less, I was studying more and more. As we were wrapping up our final session before Easter, Julio asked, What are your goals? In life? I was thinking more immediately. Think about what you want to get out of our sessions, and let's come up with a plan for the rest of the semester. I didn't know what had shifted for Julio, but I was glad for the change. I had hope for myself and my future. One of the books I had read on coming out said to write a letter to the person I planned to tell, because the person I was going to tell would need time to process. By writing down what I intended to say, it allowed the person the opportunity to read and reread my words, rather than relying on a memory of what had been said. They also said it would help me get my thoughts together, which seemed like good advice. So I wrote my mother, brother, and sister each their own letter. My plan was to give my siblings their letter as they left the house after Easter dinner. I ended each letter thanking them for reading it, inviting them to talk to me about it, and letting them know I had told each of the others so they would have someone to talk to. This kind of functional thoughtfulness was not how our family typically operated, but I hoped to introduce a healthier way for us to engage with each other. Easter weekend arrived. My brother was stoned and my sister looked sick. She was gaunt from her continued weight loss. I was on edge, but resolute. We had our traditional Easter dinner, ham, sweet and sour beans, potatoes, Pillsbury crescent rolls, a salad, and a bottle of cold duck. The conversation was the same as usual, bickering and trauma stories of our father. My brother stood to leave as soon as he had finished dessert. I had tucked his letter in with his clean laundry, and when he went to leave, I walked out with him. 
After he'd loaded his car, I turned to him and said, I put a letter in your laundry. Read it when you get home. Then went back inside. My sister and I helped our mom clear the table and do dishes. As she was getting ready to leave, I went into my room, grabbed her letter, and saw her out. Read this when you get home, I said as she got into her car. What is it? It's me. Just read it, I said, and told her to drive safe, then went back into the house. What was all that about? my mother asked. You don't usually see your brother and sister off. What was that you got from your room to give your sister? I went into my room and brought out my hamper of clean laundry to take back to school. I put it on the landing by the front door. I went back up the short set of steps and into the living room. She was sitting on the sofa that faced the stairs, watching TV. I sat on the Lazy Boy rocker across from her and turned off the television. Hey, I was watching that. Mom, there's something I need to tell you. She looked stricken. She knew what I was about to say. I love you very much, and I'm gay. She put her left hand over her mouth and started to cry silently. Tears began to run down her face. We shared space as she cried. Life is already hard enough, she said through her tears. Why do you have to be gay? I don't have to be gay. I'm just gay. I've always been gay. Stop saying that, she said. She began to cry harder, drawing ragged breaths. Whatever you do, don't tell your grandmother. It would kill her. And then I started to cry. I didn't believe her. She said it to be hurtful. How could you do this to me? She said and began sobbing. She laid down on the sofa, facing the ceiling, and began to wail. I stood up and took a step toward her. No, she said and looked in my direction. She held out her hand, her palm toward me. Mom, I said through my tears, and she just kept wailing. Both her hands were now covering her face as she cried. I turned around and started down the short flight of steps to the front door. You are the joy of my life, she called out. The past tense of her remark rang in my ears. You make me sick, she pivoted. And more quietly, I wish you were dead. I began to sob. No, no, she said, as if rejecting some internal compromise she tried to make with herself. If you can't live the way I want you to live, you are not welcome to live in my home. I stumbled down the last few steps to the landing. When you're dying of AIDS, don't come crying to me. I won't be there for you. It felt as if she'd hurled a curse at me. Tears were flowing down my cheeks and my heart physically hurt with every beat. I took the letter I'd written her out of my hamper, put it on the staircase, and left her home.